<laughs> uh, we're continuing today with um, our series, The Fellowship of Grace, the Koinonia of Grace. And uh, we are doing a little bit of, uh, a little something different here because we're going to um, look at a passage in First Peter, but there is a, a really deep, profound uh, relevance uh, with that passage and what we're, uh, we've been talking about. So, um, last week, just a little bit of a recap, we learned about this great servant uh, named Epaphroditus. He was a great servant of the gospel, a great servant of the Lord, Epaphroditus. And uh, this was a guy who was willing to risk uh, life and limb for two things. We, we talked about two things last week. One thing, he risked it for the mission of Jesus, the mission of the gospel. And the second thing he risked it for was because he had a deep personal love for this man named Paul, the Apostle Paul. And uh, Paul was in some need, he was in some trouble, and Epaphroditus was sent by this church in Philippi, which was uh, planted by Paul. And Epaphroditus had this deep love for Paul, and so he volunteered, he went, he was sent by his church to care for Paul. So he was this great servant um, in terms of the mission and a great servant in terms of his love for his fellow believers, and in this case, Paul. And we kind of mentioned a little bit also Epaphroditus in this lineage of, of servants of God, servants of the gospel, servants of God's kingdom. Uh, Epaphroditus, Timothy, we talked about the Apostle Paul, and then there was David, and there's Moses. I mean, we, we go on down the line throughout history, and uh, we see that um, there are all these different people from various um, epics in, in, in history, uh, different backgrounds, and yet there's one thing that binds them all, and the, the thing that binds them together is they had the power of God. They had the power of God. And we might ask, how did they have the power of God? Well, there's something that's even more central to their unity, the thing that binds them across time and history. All of these guys, Epaphroditus, Timothy, Paul, David, Moses, Abraham, they all had a very deep, personal, very personal relationship with God. They had this deep, I know God and God knows me type of personal, faithful, committed relationship with the God named Yahweh. And so along these lines, um, as we you know, think about Epaphroditus and, and all these other servants before him and after him, how... How did God raise up these leaders? How did God develop these, these leaders? And, and, and how did they become such powerful men? People who were willing to lay down their life for Jesus. Women too. How did this happen? And that's what we want to explore today. And I want to share with you today. So just a few days ago... Um, on Thursday, there was a mass shooting at this community college you may have heard in this little uh, city called Roseburg in Oregon. The shooter killed nine people, and he wounded seven others before 
he himself died. This shooting in Oregon was yet another tragic reminder for me that we live in a broken world and we are a broken people. By broken, what I mean is things are just not as they're meant to be. Right? A light bulb that's not shining, a door that doesn't line up with the door jam. It's just not right. It's not working. A car that doesn't, when you turn the key, it doesn't start. It's like the worst feeling, right? You feel immediately your heart just go, ah, I'm stuck here. It's broken. The world and the people in it are broken. We are not as we should be. For example, when you have a corporation that's not doing well, right? Who do the employees and who do the stockholders look at? They look at the managers. They look at the people who are driving the thing, right? It's the people who manage it who are accountable for the condition of their organization that they're responsible for. Well, the job of managing this world has been entrusted to you and to me. And looking at the world, it doesn't look like we've done a really good job. There are surely granted good things, lots of good things that are going on in this world, but I want to ask, are we satisfied with this current state of affairs? Are you satisfied with how the world's going? There are a lot of bad things going on, too. And not just on a global scale, not just on a national scale, right? It's easy to kind of like externalize all these issues and problems. Go, oh, yeah, that's the politicians, and that's the government, and that's North Korea, and that's, you know, Syria. That's them. But uh, there are a lot of broken things, if you're honest, going on on every scale, including the very personal scale, right? In your own life, in my own life, in the lives of the people around you, sicknesses, uh, physical, mental, poverty, financial struggles, pressures, personal relationship drama, marital problems, children problems, parents problems, friend problems. We don't have to go searching on Yahoo or CNN uh, to see that there are problems. There are problems everywhere on every scale, in every proportion, in every arena. And nobody can stand up and say, I'm perfect. I've never done anything wrong. This brokenness is something that affects all of us. The Bible calls it sin. In Romans 3, it says, for all of us, all of us have sinned. It's something that we don't need to be ashamed about in one sense because we've all, nobody's perfect, so don't worry, you know. Nobody expects you to be perfect, or we shouldn't at least. And at the same time, it is something to be ashamed about. We can't be satisfied with this because, look, here where, here's where we are. One of this, the other things that I observed about uh, this whole incident with this shooter is um, this guy had a very high hostility towards those who believed in God. He targeted uh, people on Thursday, targeted people who had some sort of religious affiliation or association. And uh, the reports are that he would ask people, you know, what religion or do you believe in God or something to that effect. We don't know. We have differing reports. And he maybe said all of it, you know, and different witnesses saw different times of what he said. But he had some sort of hostility because he targeted those people and he shot those people. 
We used to think that uh, religious persecution was something that happened far away. It's happening here on American soil. It's sadly ironic because one of the things, one of the good things, there are a lot of bad things, but one of the good things about American history is we have this value of, hey, let's allow people the freedom to worship as they feel fit. The freedom of religion. It's a constitutional right. And that's something that made this country very, very different. When you look at the history of starting countries, you line them all up together. There are not very many countries, definitely none of this size and scale, that started with, let's allow people to worship whom they feel convicted to worship and not kill them. Things are changing, though. We have freedom of religion in America, but we need to ask, do we really? Things are changing. I bring all this up because I think if we want to be responsible human beings, we can't just put our heads in the sand and close our ears and go, la, 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 don't talk to me, don't talk to me, I don't want to hear it. If we want to be responsible, mature human beings, we can't do that. It's not an option. In our passage today, we learn the answer to the question, is there hope? What is the hope? And God tells us, yes, there is hope. Despite the fact that all of us, all our missteps in managing our world is, is driving it into the ground, despite that fact, there is a solution. And that solution is Jesus Christ. That solution is the hope that flows from Jesus Christ. Now, I know to some of us in this room and to some in the world, that sounds too hokey. Oh, come on. That's just like fairy tale stuff. But hear me out. To me, it makes sense that the answer to the problems of our complicated, complex world, the answer to the problems of our complicated, complex hearts, I mean, ask anyone. You don't even have to ask a believer or a follower of Jesus. You can ask any. There have been novels written by people who have very differing beliefs from Christians talking about the darkness of the heart talking about the, the unfathomability of the heart, talking about how the, the human heart is so mysterious, how it can be so capable of love and, and noble things, and yet at the same time so capable of very ugly, dark, broken things. How, how is that even? It, it doesn't make sense, right, when you think about it. How can one heart give birth to both these things? We have this problem of this complicated world, this complicated heart, complicated problems, but let me suggest to you that the answer to all of it is very simple and yet very powerful. The solution to our world's problems has to be something. It has to be something that is simple enough for everybody to access, right? It's got to be something simple enough that whether you're a PhD or beyond, whatever that is, or whether you're someone who has grown up in a rural country and, and you're just, you know, a man of the earth, man of the soil, 
You've never gone to school. You never had any interest in school. It's the solution to the world has to be something that everybody in the world can understand. And they don't need a, 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 a degree in philosophy and, and metaphysics to really grasp, oh, yes, that must be the answer to the world's problems. Because the, then that only appeals to, what, like one-tenth or one-hundredth of a tenth of a percentile of the world population. How can the solution to the world's problems be accessible to only that many people? It makes no sense, right? It's got to be something, the answer to the solution of the, the world, the problems of the world, it's got to be something simple. And at the same time, because the world's problems are so complex and so overarching and so difficult to figure out, like, what's the cause? I mean, think about, like, drug abuse. There's, like, psychological uh, trouble in there There's, and, and causes. There's economic, you know, problems wrapped up into there. There's sociological. There's, it's, it's, and physical. I mean, there's all these different layers, right, to all these huge problems that, that you know, face our world. So then maybe our, our, our solution needs to be something very complex, but no, it can't. But it has to be something powerful enough to be able to handle all of that. It's got to be potent enough. It's got to have power enough to, to foresee and have wisdom to figure out and to look at this huge problem that politicians all across history have looked at and, and, been, and, and scratched their heads and left them wanting. I don't know how to deal with this. I need more power. The answer to our world's problems has got to be both simple and powerful. And the only place that I know of and the only place that has been claimed and then proven where these two things, the simplicity and the power intersect so perfectly, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was very simple. He claimed to be the Son of God. And he was very powerful. He said he was going to die, but didn't raised up on the third day. And guess what happened? He was raised up on the third day, amen? He was powerful, and yet he was very simple. He was someone that a PhD could admire and be intimidated by, but he was also someone that a sinful man and a sinful woman could sit down together with and have a life conversation with. He was humble enough to wash the feet of his followers, the people that follow him. He washed their feet. And yet he was powerful enough to conquer death. So fittingly, Today's passage is a very simple passage, but it's also a very powerful passage. It's a passage that's beautifully simple and also elegant in its wholeness and sheer power. And I want to share this with you. First Peter chapter one, three through five. First Peter chapter one, verses three through five. I'm going to read that. Uh, those three verses, and as I read it, um, I would like for you to just hold those two things in mind, the things that I mentioned, simplicity and power. Simplicity for all to understand and available to all, and it's easy to access, 
and the power yet to handle de the deepest human problems. Here's what God says to those problems. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us a new birth into a living hope. Hope for the hopeless through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. For you. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So simple, so powerful. God the Father loves his children. He loves you. And in his great mercy, he gave you a new birth, a new life that gives you a living hope, the hope of being able to share in the resurrection of Christ. There are a couple things that I'd like to share uh, about this passage, really just simply and hopefully powerfully. And then I'm going to invite uh, someone to share their personal story that illustrates how simple God's love is and yet how powerful and what it can do in the life of someone who's broken. The first thing about this passage, God the Father, he is Father. Some of us come from backgrounds maybe where you had a good relationship with your dad and you, you talk with them even now and, and you're, like, you're like best buddies. That's awesome. That's, God bless you. I mean, that's, that's, he blessed you with that. Some of us uh, come from backgrounds where that may not be the case, you know, and we, we have kind of a, a, a rough relationship with our dads and, and it's hard for us to communicate with them. Whatever the case, I want to offer you some hope that God the Father is not like any father you've ever known, whether good or bad. He is much better. How do we know this? Because he did not spare even his own son. Why? Because he loves you and he cares for you. He wants to save your life. So he didn't even spare his own son. How will he not also graciously give you all other things that you need? He is a good dad. Amen? He's a good father. He, he says, I love you, and he backs it up with action. He, just doesn't, he doesn't just say, I love you. You know, he doesn't go to a, a parenting school, learn some homework, and say, okay, mechanically, I need to do this. I'm going to be a good dad. I love you. No, he said it, and then he did it. We have a good father. Second thing, 1 Peter 1.4 this is an inheritance that he's given us that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Jesus loves us so much that he taught us to seek for ourselves heavenly treasure, not earthly treasure. Because he knows what's going to happen to earthly treasure. He knows that earthly treasure spoils. He knows that it breaks down. He knows that these things get phased out. 
<laughs> by the very companies that build them, right? He knows that earthly treasure can get stolen. It can break. And Jesus, knowing these things about earthly treasure, he doesn't want that for you. He wants heavenly treasure for you that lasts because he loves you. If he hated you, he would say, keep going after that earthly treasure. Yes. But he loves you. He says, don't settle for that. Here's something better. Seek heavenly treasure. So powerful, so simple. Verse 5, the next thing I want to share. Through faith, we are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We, as new creations, are shielded by God's strength. He shields us by His very power to protect us on our way home. Where is home? Home. <laughs> home is with the Father. Home is with the Father. John 14, Jesus tells us, In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house is a room just for you, and I am going there to prepare it for you. And I will one day come back, and I will take you to be with me, so that you also can be where I am. So simple. It's a story of God who wants to be with his creation. And he's waiting in his house. And he sends his son to gather as many people and bring them into the house. So simple and yet so powerful. God, through his power, wants to protect and shield that inheritance for us. And the last thing. We have new birth into a living hope. Verse 3. New birth into a living hope. If you would, write this down. Old birth leads to the old end. While the new birth leads to the new end. The old birth leads to the old end. While the new birth leads to a new end. Praise be to God the Father. In His great mercy, He has given us what? A new birth. And what does a new birth lead to? A new end. What is this new end? Well, we got to ask first, what's the old end? And for that, in Revelation 20, you can just write that down. You don't have to turn there. Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15, it talks about the old end. The old end is for those whose names are not in the book of life. The book of life will be opened before the throne of uh, judgment. And if the names are not in there, those names will go to the second death. They will die the second death. That is the old end. But a free gift for anyone who believes. Your name can be written in the book of life through Jesus. And when that happens, you have a new birth. And in that new birth, you have a new end. No longer is that old end your end. Now you have a new end. New end, what is it? It's actually described in the very next paragraph, Revelation 21. You can write that down as well and look at it later. A new heaven and a new earth. Makes sense because 
Where else would you put a new birth? You put in a new heaven and a new earth. As we think about this passage, let me sum it it up like this. Because of the life and death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, all of those who follow him, all of those who trust in him like Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul, all of those who put themselves at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I am yours because everything else sucks. All those who follow Jesus will also have resurrection. Yes, we will encounter suffering in this world because why? It's a broken world filled with broken people, including us. But like Jesus, we will have resurrection. Jesus suffered. He himself suffered. We will suffer. Those who follow him will suffer. But he also resurrected. And those who follow him will be resurrected. And the power of God protects this inheritance that he's given to you. And nothing can pry his hands off of you. The simplicity of the solution, and yet the power. And this is something that, if you have this in your heart, if you have that inheritance in your heart, God has also given it to you so that you could share. Share your riches. Because there are a lot of people around you who need power, and they need access to God. Those two things collide beautifully and powerfully in Jesus. At this time, I want to invite someone to share their story about how they themselves have seen Jesus come so simply and yet so powerfully and done some amazing redemptive healing work in their lives. And so if you could welcome Christy Kim. Hi, my name is Christy Kim. I'm very thankful to be able to share my story. I'm a little nervous. I'm Pastor Young Kim's wife, and um, I'm also a licensed marriage family therapist. I've been practicing for uh, the past 12 years. And uh, my clients always ask me this one question, and I wish I could tell them what I'm about to share with you now. Uh, If we could pray with me real quickly. Lord, I'm very nervous, and Lord, I pray that, um, that you will shine through these words, that you will be glorified, and Lord, um... I pray that the hardened hearts, the walls of our hearts will be broken down so that you will be glorified and we will be healed today because of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, I'm an only child of um, a very successful doctor, um, oriental medicine doctor, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And so my parents also only bought new homes every five years. We lived in a beautiful home with um, nice German cars and um, nice things. So from the outside, um, my family looked perfect. Um, my parents went to church. They served at a church. Um, 
our family looked ideal. And my dad was always um, very um, gracious in front of others. He would always buy me nice gifts, and publicly we looked wonderful. Um, my dad, you know, he was, I think he's an alcoholic. I'm sure he is. And so when he would drink, he would tell him, um, he told me this one story. Um, he, he rarely talked about himself, but this is one of the things he shared. He said, when he was five, he had six older siblings, and when he was five, um, his, his siblings beat him up so much that, um, and his parents were living, left them in Seoul, and his parents had gone to Busan, which is the south, uh, southernmost part of Korea, and they were uh, working there and sending money. And so he, as a five-year-old, um, took a train to, um, from Seoul all the way to Busan and traveled to find his um, parents. And he found his parents, and he told them what was happening. You know, they're beating me, blah, blah. And they bought him a bowl of soup and sent him right back on the train and said, you have to go back and live there. And I think that um, just scarred my, my dad, and he just was so used to... Uh, a cycle of violence, and his life was, he hasn't met Jesus yet, so it, his life was just filled with that, haunting him. So when I was, a, um, when I was two, my dad um, went to the United States to um, seek a better life for our family, and my mom and I lived with my, my aunt. And during those years, I would have these like these dreams about the United States, you know? The roads are paved in gold. Um, there's <laughs> nobody cries, nobody gets hungry. United States was heaven. And I would dream these things in my mind. Um, when I was growing up, we had an outhouse. Um, we didn't have running water or plumbing. Um, there were dirt roads, and I was just sharing the story with my kids yesterday. Um, that was just how it was. We slept on the floor. So when I would hear these stories about running water, toilets, and, and kids having their own room, it was heaven to me. But most of all, in the United States is where my dad was. And I had these dreams about what it would be like to have a family. What it would be like to have a dad. You know, and I would look at other families, and I would just envy it. So when I was five, um, my mom left first, and then um, six months later, I joined them in the United States. And I traveled by myself, so I could have definitely been lost. But God, um, God took care of me then, too. And at the airport, I heard my name. They, they called out my name. They said, come to a certain place. I'm five. <laughs> so I'm walking, and I see this guy that I've only seen in pictures. And he looks at me, and he goes, are you my daughter? And I looked at him, and I said, are you my dad? He said, yeah, I think I am. So then I went home with him, and my mom was there. And I was so excited because we had a car in Korea. You didn't have cars. And it was just amazing. To me, it was heaven. My dream come true. A couple weeks later, I woke up to violent screams of fighting and just um, my mom being beaten. And um, I got up, ran, and tried to stop it. And in the middle of it, I was still... Um, I got in the middle of the, the violent cycle, too. This continued in my life um, just over and over and over again. When I was, when I was, um, when I was at one point when I was six, my dad um, put us in the car, and he took us to um, Griffith Park around 2 in the morning. I was a little girl, and he just woke us up, took us to the park, and he was going to throw us away. And so he took us to Griffith Park, deep in the woods, and he dropped us off, my mom and I, and then 
my mom was, I think, you know, just the, can't imagine the trauma that my mom was going through. So she just left me in the forest, and she took off in the forest, too. So I'm there standing by the tree. And what happened was, um, when I was in Korea, I had attended a Korean uh, Christian kindergarten for, I want to say, just a little time, a short time. But the first day of kindergarten, my teacher gave this message, and she said, there is Buddha, and she showed a tree, and Buddha's made from that tree. And, I, and my family is a, uh, was um, a Buddhist family. We, had, we would listen to chants. We would go to the temple. And then she said, and this is God. And there was like a hand, and the world was in his hand. And she said, you, you could believe this tree, or you could believe the creator who holds everything. And she, told, and she shared the gospel. And I remember thinking, oh, Jesus, number one God. So he, I'm going to, I think I'm going to go with him. So when I was in the forest at Griffith Park, I remembered that there was a God who, hold, who held the world together. So I prayed to him. I remember praying, asking God to rescue us, just, just, just scared. And um, right at that time, a forest ranger drove by, and my dad saw that, and he got scared. So he came back, and we were, my dad found us and took us back home. And so this cycle of guns, violence, just always being afraid that my mom would die or I would die or we would all die was part of my life, just fearful every day. And my mom, you know, she was saying, you know, I don't know how to raise kids in the United States. So she asked my neighbor, she said, in the United States, who happened to be Korean, who happened to be Christian, she said, in the United States, how do you raise kids so that they can grow up to be good people? And she said, oh, let me tell you, you raise them in the church. You, tell them to, you take them to church. And my mom didn't drive, and she didn't know the language, so she asked her to take me to church. And my neighbor continued to take me to church, and um, God was still pouring his message into me. Um, as I got older... And my parents became more successful. We started doing what most successful people do in the United States. We joined a church. And so we went to church. Um, My parents served in the church. Nobody knew what was going on in my life. Uh, My childhood was so, such a contrast to what you would see. You know, these nice homes, nice cars. And then my childhood was so dark. When I, was, when I was a young girl, um, this is the way that my parents would um, buy me things. There was a place called Kinney Shoes, and we would go. And um, you ladies will know what I'm talking about. There were these little black Mary Janes that I wanted. And I was reaching for it, but we only could go to the shoe store for five minutes. That's it. And so as I was reaching for the Mary Janes, I think I touched a pair of ugly brown shoes. And my parents just grabbed the brown shoes, and that was it. I couldn't buy those black Mary Janes. And, that was, and I was too scared to say anything, too, too terrified. So I just wore those ugly brown shoes. And I hate brown shoes to this day. And then when I was, and then I remember one birthday, um, we went to um, Zodi's. It's a store from a long time ago. Um, and I wanted this Barbie head. Girls, you relate, you know a head Barbie, and then you put makeup on the Barbie, you curl her hair, and stuff like that. And um, I, was, I was reaching for that, and my, um, I think I touched something else, and that was it. We grabbed that one, and we came home. And I remember being so sad, because I wanted that Barbie head so badly, but I was so scared to say anything that I just um, 
I only cried in my sleep, and even I had just put it away. When I was in second grade, um, I wanted to, um, I wanted a bike. And my parents, um, they decided, because I'm an only child and they didn't want to waste money on me, they bought an adult woman's size bike. So I'm in second grade and I can't, I think I could ride it now, but, you know, I can't ride the bike, so um, I have to fend for myself. So I would go, like, climb up a, <laughs> like a bush with it, and then I would climb on the bike, and then I would just start riding. And I was, and I'm such a chicken, I still am today, so I would take the bike and I would go to the elementary school and ride around the elementary school, because that way I didn't have to stop, because I had to be very um, smart about how I stopped, because my legs would dangle, you know? And um, my parents, when people would ask my parents all the time, you know, um, they would ask in front of me, which was kind of funny, but they would say, it's, you know, how come you guys only have one kid? They would say that. My parents would go, oh, because we don't like children. And I would go, okay. So it was a constant reminder in my mind to stay out of their way, that I wasn't wanted, I was a burden. And so I, I was a very good kid, according to my parents, because I never expressed any negativity. But it was inside. It was inside. And so because of the crazy turmoil that would happen at night. My mom couldn't get up or take care of me. So at an early age, at a young age, elementary school, I would get up, I'd get my lunch ready, to, and I would take myself to school. And I would just take care of myself because I didn't want to bother anybody. And my parents, they didn't come to anything that I did at school. They didn't come to a single parent conference, nothing. Um, even when I played in the band and I was first flute, they didn't come. So in my mind... It was sad, but it was kind of good. Less attention, less violence, less terror. And so, but because my parents didn't know what was going on, and also I was never allowed to have friends over. I never, was never allowed to have friends over. I was never allowed to go over to friends' houses because they didn't want people to know what was happening in our home. And so, I'm an, I don't have any siblings. <laughs> I'm growing up by myself. And so just this emotional darkness and I just got involved in so many, like, I was so lost, getting involved in um, bad crowds, getting involved in the wrong kinds of friends. And I really just hated myself, just can't stand myself. And so when I was 15, um, I decided I probably should just die. Like, what's the point? Nobody really wants me. Nobody, you know, don't have many friends, can't, my parents don't love me. So... Um, one day, I decided, hey, I'm just going to take a blade and stick it in a light socket, and I'm going to die. And, I, and I'm telling you, we're going to church, so I'm thinking I'm going to heaven. So as I'm, a, and as I'm about to put it into the light socket, I remember I heard this voice, and um, the voice said, where do you think you'll go if you die? And I was like, I'm going to heaven. And, and the voice was like, no, where do, you're not headed for heaven. I don't know you. And I was kind of reasoning with this voice, like, but I've been going to church. But you don't know me as Lord and Savior. So I got on my, and, and I felt like God was saying, listen, if you have me as your Lord and Savior, everything's going to be okay. Things will happen. So, okay. So that day, I got on my knees, and I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And still, 
life was better because I had God. Even though I was so lonely, so depressed, I knew God loved me. And so I was still struggling. And then I went to college. So I'm, I'm having issues with self-image. I can't stand myself. I always feel like people hate me. People are talking about me. People probably think I'm a nuisance, think I'm a burden. If my own parents didn't want me, why would anyone else want me or accept me? And then I got to college, and um, I went to college in Boston, and I was noticing that people were kind of normal. They would talk to their parents. They wanted their parents to visit. They would, they would, I didn't want my parents to visit. I don't want my parents to talk to me. I didn't want to have anything to do with them, kind of. But there they were, like, talking to their parents. And then one of my roommates, like, her and her mom and dad, they would talk about everything. And I thought, you know what? Maybe, um, maybe, maybe this is normal, and something's wrong with me here. And so... Um, I started to wonder what was wrong with me, and I realized I needed healing. My life was unmanageable. You know, I had body image issues. I had just had so many issues. I just couldn't, I hated myself, couldn't stand myself. And so my life was out of control. There was nothing that was in control about my life, but I knew I needed Jesus. I knew something had to change. I knew I needed help. And I heard about this thing called inner healing, so I started praying for it. I didn't know what it was, but I prayed for it. I said, God, you have to heal me. You have to change me. I'm so sick of myself. You need to change me. And I prayed this prayer for three years. Every morning, Jesus, please, can you change me? Please heal me. Every night, can you please heal me? Can you? He-? I'm so sick of myself. I'm so sick of saying this prayer. Do something. Um, one summer, around, uh, around three years, I went on a retreat, and it was a very um, pretty charismatic retreat. I went, and at the retreat, um, God asked me, to forgive my dad. So I'm saying, God, please heal me. And he's like, forgive your dad. God, please heal me. Forgive your dad. Hmm, okay, I guess I have to forgive my dad. But it was really hard because I felt like I felt like I had every right to hate him. I had every right to have this rage. And, you know, like he deserved it. He deserved it. But God said, forgive him. And so I um, wrote it down, all the stuff I hated about my dad and and then I just kind of like, like threw it, you know, like I physically felt like I was going, Ugh! and I prayed. I said, God, I forgive my dad because you told me to, <laughs> and I forgive him because you want me to, but I need you to help me to forgive him. And that was my prayer. And I just started crying because I didn't want to forgive. I didn't want to. And in the time that I was praying for this, I also asked God, I wanted to know how much he loved me. I needed to know that I mattered. And then I'm crying, I'm crying, and all of a sudden, I see this vision. And there's Jesus, and there's a little girl. And this little girl had black Mary Janes on. And she was playing with Barbie. And Jesus was playing with her, too. You see, by this time, I had forgotten about the Mary Jane and the Barbie head. I'd forgotten. But Jesus remembered, and he was playing with me. I really didn't want to cry. And then, and then all of a sudden, we were, I'm crying, I'm crying, because I can't believe he remembered things that even I had forgotten. And then we're at the elementary school, And there I am riding my bike, struggling, this little second grader. And there's Jesus holding the back of the bike, and he's running with me, making sure that I don't fall. 
and I can't believe it. Even I didn't know that I had wanted my father and more mother there. Then we go to the junior high, and we're at the, we're at the band performance. I see me, and I see Jesus in the back, and he has the program, and he looks at my name, and he touches it. He was there. These were all things that I had never told anyone. Even I had forgotten that I longed for these things and I wanted these things and I was hurt by these things, but God knew. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that that he took the time. Somebody that was so nobody wanted, somebody that nobody thought was important, God took the time and he showed me how much he loved me. He knew. He knew my pain. See, I knew I wasn't anybody important. I know I'm not the smartest. I know I'm not the talented. I know I'm not the greatest. I went to Boston, college in Boston. There's a lot of talented people there. What I knew was I knew I was a loser. I knew I was a failure. I knew in my heart I was so broken, so severely rejected, and I knew I needed, I needed Jesus. I'm the champion of sinners. I know sin very well, and I do it very, very well. But he, he saved me from myself, and he saved me from my pain. He saved me from my, my woundedness, and he still does that every day. He continues to do so. So my clients ask me, this is the question that my clients ask me, do you think I can get better? Do you think I can be healed? And I always answer emphatically, yes. And they always want to know how. And I wish I could tell them what I just shared with you now. And this is what I want to say. Because I was more ill and more lost than anyone I know. And he saved me and healed me. And he can save you and he can heal you. God is still working on me. I fail him Every day. But he is so gracious. And I wanted to share, um, actually, I, I feel like First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5 is actually quite, it, it encompasses what I want to say. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He saved me, and I'm so thankful. Thank you for listening.